I've done some self-reflecting since I started recording this podcast. I was totally wrong when I said it. <laughs> Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. Here I am with an exciting guest. Some of you may have never heard him before, but I always love to chat with him. And his name is Nathaniel. Welcome, Nathaniel. Hey, hey, hi. How are you? Uh, not a name I usually go by. It's Nate, you can call me Nathan. That's fine. Okay. Uh, no. Yeah. Well, no. 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 I think for the show, we'll keep okay. it at Nathan. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Consistency yeah. for any previous listeners, right. uh, such as myself. Right. Uh, I am. I am one of the regulars. Mm-hmm. Subscribed on Spotify. If you're not, uh, you should be. I don't have a Spotify account. Just don't want to pay. Oh. I you, suppose you can do it with the free. Well, okay. Well, you must have a podcast app because I send you podcasts. I do. I am subscribed on Google Podcasts. Ah, I see. Yes. Yeah. No, not Spotify. I don't want to pay for a service, and I already pay for a service. I see. <laughs> Smart. Yeah. Really, uh, Krista Freeland would be proud. <laughs> good, good job. Uh, well, great. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, th- I hear that this time we're going to talk more about Kubernetes, uh, unless, of course, the things we have to talk about beforehand take too long. Yeah. So why don't you get us started this time? Because okay. uh, last time your previous guest may have ranted for like half an hour before the content started. Wow. I mean, we do call it, you can't do better unless you know about cool recommendations. So yeah, maybe that last guest, you know, went on, but he gave us some cool recommendations. I think so. In my notes. Yeah. So. Uh, but all right, I'll, I'll start. Uh, so I'll start off with interesting things. Okay. Or interesting slash mildly funny that I thought. Uh, saw this like travel hack in which this lady, because of all the baggages being missing these days, um, she got a real cheap economy flight and FedExed her clothes to the new location. And genius, she got tracking number and everything. If she had done that with a suitcase at tra- well, whatever airline she was with, apparently it would have cost it 70 bucks, FedEx charged her 40 bucks. And she got it definitely delivered. And she's like, every time I travel, I always just take my dirty laundry or whatever and I ship that back to me always. And I was like, why not just do it both ways this time? And it's genius. I think when I look into it, depending on where I travel, because for domestic or people just flying across US, that sounds like a genius idea. You just do that. I'm sure they get up within a week delivery. And yeah, you just take your whatever Ryanair is, it's Spirit Airlines, I don't know, one of the two UK, US, and you can get a you know decent deal and no baggage charge. Sure, yeah, just yeah. make sure you're, you're paying for it, not like, Postal service because that'll take no. that'll take anywhere from one to eighty five weeks to That's arrive. True. Uh, my mom has sent me stuff from Ontario to BC before, and she'll message me like, "Oh, I sent this thing four weeks ago. Do you have it?" I'm like, "No." And then six weeks later, "Oh yeah, that thing I forgot about. It's arrived wow. now." Yeah, it's rough. So you wouldn't want to be wearing one pair of undies for that long. No, you just you just go ahead and buy like six weeks worth, and you only take two weeks on trip. Is that not normal? Is that okay? We'll move on. Uh, so that was the funny, interesting thing. Um, the some happy things. Okay, happy's good. Yeah, Pixel. They must have heard the last or the episode before because they fixed it. They fixed the issue. Great. I know. Just if you are still listening, ex Google worker or the AI that probably transcribed the podcast and like told the machine complaint 
company. Uh, thank you, because I'm very happy to go between my phone and my MacBook constantly for meetings and such and not try to, you know, find my headphones or at least when I'm in the kitchen pretending to be in a meeting while I'm cooking my food. It's very helpful. Uh, so very happy about that. Great. I missed the whole thing. Sort of like with, uh, what was it, um, fingerprint readers before they went under the screen. Right. Like I just, I never had them uh, because I went from I mean, such an old phone, pre-finger, no, it was uh, Face ID. Right. Pre-Face ID to when they switched to fingerprint readers under the screen. And basically just one big jump. Uh, I missed the uh, the firmware fiasco. Good. Firmware gate. No one, no one needed it. No. You know? Um, speaking of consistently good things, this is all tech now. Okay. All right. So I was very happy. So one of the things I feel like I should mention that I haven't really appreciated verbally, but I love it every time I do, is the the start of times on MacBook Pro, the new ones with the M ones. It's just the fact that I can just open the thing and it's straight right right there, and then I do the fingerprint sensor or Chrome or anything. It just launches real fast. And I, I really love it compared to my MacBook Pro that was previously I had, and it just, you know, it just makes all the difference. You would think it's all about the RAM and the storage and stuff. No, the processor plays a huge role. And good job, Apple. You just, if you could just make it so that everyone else, people who also don't have money, could use your thing, that'd be great. But, you know, that's fine. For now, you use what you get, right? Um, what other, oh yeah. So there's this app called Notion, um, mm -hmm. and I hadn't used it up until my latest company, and I'm never going back. Oh. It's so fun for to take notes in it. I just find it so much more, because it, their whole UI is, it's a big paper. You can click anywhere, you can start typing, you can like make notes as opposed to like Google Docs or whatever. I find it like loads and works much more cleaner. I don't know what it's like for collaborating and stuff. I haven't done a lot of collaboration. I just make docs and I just send it to people. Uh, but compared to Google Docs, I've just really enjoyed it, especially making my one-on-one -on -one notes and everything and has good templates, which is what I think like is majorly missing for Google Docs and such. Um, so I've really enjoyed it. Might even continue to use it as a personal thing if or when I leave my current job. Um, but for now, yeah, really liked it. So I wanted to give them a shout out. Check them out at notion.app. Um, there is no referral code here, but oh. just like send them a message being like, yeah, this podcast, pay them. I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can try like Gian 10 and see what happens. That's true. Yeah. Just do better dev show, notion.app, and then they'll hit enough 404s on their logs that maybe someone will be like, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> this looks like a fake affiliate. Yeah. We should maybe make it a real affiliate. Heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Meanwhile, it's just locust swarm. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, just one man and a, and a C bunch of CPUs. Yes, and a bunch of virtual machines running different VPN providers. So uh -huh. it doesn't look like it's one IP. Yeah. <laughs> not that I've done that kind of stuff before. Never. I would not. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the final set of tooling, now that I'm using K Kubernetes a lot, uh, K9s. It is so good. Heck yeah, man. It's so good for like live patching configs, cleaning shit out, uh, just deleting things. Oh, so happy. Uh, I was mildly confused on how to fast switch between things, but once you use it enough, 
it, it is, yeah, the autocomplete, so everything, having a nice UI is, has been real nice. Um, on the same notes, I'm using some tool called, I think it's called, it's like Cube NS and like a Cube CX or something where you can switch contexts a lot quicker. Um, and yeah, I just made my bash out aliases or whatever, so I feel like a cool user. Uh -huh. uh, and yeah, it's just, it's made my life a lot easier. So would would recommend and... I think it was something called like Cube PS1 or something I installed on my bash. So at any given stage, it shows me what namespace and context I'm in so that I don't accidentally run something against production or whatever. Um, I don't even know if I have full production access in our thing. Whoever built our roles in our company just left out a lot of things. I'm allowed to create an IAM key, but I'm not allowed to tag or name it. Uh, which I'm just like, I okay, sure, I guess. Uh, you give me the important thing, but quality is missing here, but whatever. I guess as their new DevOps person, I should fix it, but I can't because I don't have admin access on things. So it's it's just been, and then it's lower priority enough, and I'll probably forget until the next person gets onboarded, and they'll have problems, so they'll, they can deal with it, or I'll deal with it when they are in trouble. Um, now, all the sad things. Oh. Yes. So Terraform Cloud. It is working, it does its job, but it is not made for like multiple systems. You can configure or run the Terraform Cloud on like one client, they call it sort of thing, one at a time. So if I have, I don't know, if I have like 20 different EKS clusters, I can only update or apply things to one at a time, which is boring and uh, I don't know, like. Maybe I want to apply to all of them because they're all different customers running the same thing and I would like to upgrade all my customers at once. I can't. Uh, hmm. They are coming up with a different pricing strategy where they'll give you unlimited concurrency but they'll charge you on the amount of resources you create, uh, which might be a better pricing model for whatever product I'm going to be working on. But just looking at it right now, it just felt like if all they have to do is from a controller perspective, go on to this final thing and just say Terraform apply. Um, I don't understand why it has to be one at a time. Um, but you know what? They built the product. Can't 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 shame HashiCorp or they'll lock me in a vault. So you know, just gonna stay away from that. Um, speaking of resources, uh, AWS I am it's. So up until now, I've only had to deal with like AWS service level roles or um, just users, groups, whatever, your normal hierarchy. However, AWS has this whole concept of assuming a role, which means sometimes you can take a role and you can give that role permission to assume another role. And you can also give that user permission to pass a role, not necessarily assume it, to another service that's running. And I feel like it's one of those things where they were just like, yeah, we're gonna make this like very flexible and they made it really confusing. Because if you just read some of those docs or look at things like, why, why can't I just tell my service to just assume a role, which you can, but to make it more secure, you can like move things around, mm -hmm. which I feel like opens up more window for making things less secure because people will just be like, I don't, I don't know how this works or I don't fully understand, so screw this. So I'm just gonna make it the cleanest or simplest way. And now everyone has admin access, and now you're bad. Um, so yeah, maybe it's just because I am 
not entirely sure of how these things are supposed to work. But while setting it up this weekend on like certain infrastructures we were created, because part of our service will be creating stuff in customers' resources, and those are like compute resources. Some of those compute resources need to provide access to maybe some node that spins up, or maybe actually that is pretty much it. It'll spin up a whole bunch of nodes from Carpenter, and we, we want those nodes, based on the type of node they are, to have limited access. And uh, it's just passing those around. Even the node that's allowed to give permissions to these sub-nodes needs the higher level permission, or it can't even pass. Uh, and just looking at the mess of those things, it just makes things slightly more confusing, especially if you don't necessarily really even have admin access in these accounts uh, to create and provision all the resources. So. I'm at the point where I've made it so that I am dashboard doesn't complain about any security issues, but I foresee myself definitely getting into a problem where if the company tries to land a big enterprise killer client and they're like, whoa, 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 we need to know every single command you're running in our account. And we're like, oh, there's 130 resources here. We should really have a mapping of which permission we need for what resource and at when time in life cycle, which is a lot of documentation for a startup which they don't believe in. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that's like my little rant on AWS IAM. Stay tuned for me getting familiar with it more and then coming up with more rants because I don't see it being simplified anytime soon. Yeah, I, I've, I have a high level understanding of assume rule and where I've seen it used is just with essentially the single level where you've got some account, they have a role that they've defined on their side and then they just grant an access permission to say, you know, uh, ARN, whatever, uh, or ARN, mm -hmm. uh, this is the principle, and its permissions are to assume this role, and here's the role. Uh, and that way, they have full control over the role on their side, and they have full control over who gets to assume that role. And it essentially just separates the things through this one little entry point. Uh, not so much had to deal with like passing things around, mm -hmm. but it is really nice uh, conceptually at that s single level where you're like, hey, we're gonna need these permissions in your account. They have to then make that IAM role in their account and then explicitly grant you access to assume that role. They don't have to do anything funky with like, sure, just like here's admin access, go yeah. make the right role, we'll trust that you assume it, like none of that. Uh, so conceptually, at least sim the simple level makes sense. Fortunately, I don't have to deal with anything more complex than that, but we had a conversation today about initial discussions around what a white label solution might look like, so who knows what will happen. Wow. Uh, hopefully, it's just a UI thing, but yeah, I don't want to do anything with the back end and permissions and stuff, so hopefully, it's just a UI thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, who knows, in like a year, it might not even be called white label. It'll be called something else. Yes. Allow label. That's so, right. Uh, but... The problem, so, and, and par partially, it creates sort of a negative customer. I feel like if you are someone offering services on AWS, it makes things less seamless because now that your customer needs to know how to create IAM roles and such. Right. Or give you at least enough permissions to create it for them. And at that point, you're just like, oh, they may or may not have all these permissions. And it creates that sort of barrier. And they've also sort of done this thing where not all services supported role assumption from the start. So like for the longest time, 
S3 buckets were only accessible by a IAM username and password, like access key and secret combination. Whatever that user had access to S3 buckets, that's what you would do, but you couldn't do that to a role grant. And so a lot of machine learning and data science old products and such that I'm encountering now, uh, that have been around a while, they rely on that model. They rely on an access key and secret and not assume role for large data sets on S3. And so now when we do these things, we now have to create the whatever username, whatever, and it's causing problems because we don't we necessarily don't want to create that. And now we have multiple ways of accessing resources in the same account uh, for the same service, which feels redundant and not very you know, intuitive. Where it, it's like we onboard a new customer and if they actually know their like stuff, they'll be like, why are you creating a role and I am user? We just, why just use the role? Like we can't, we'd like to, we can't, um, <laughs> or unless you go back to the open source product and like whatever contribute to it. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the rant on there. Uh, final rant on K. Right. I just want to make a comment that I'm curious to see if, like you said, in a few weeks, you're like, well, I see now why this makes more sense, or if you just say, nope, still isn't, still isn't good. I still complain about it. Yeah. Because um, I know I've had things. TypeScript, for example, that I love to complain about, but also I'm like, yeah, I see the point. Uh, curious to see where you end up, along with like Istio and all these things you've been talking about lately. That's true, yeah. Historically, I've always continued to complain about things. Uh, <laughs> so the pattern may, may continue. <laughs> Fair enough. But I may have other reasons to complain about that instead of the final reason I complain about them. Um, but yeah, k uh, controller, and so... Once I was introduced to the concept of controllers uh, for different services and such, it made a lot of sense and it made me happy until I realized how many things can get dependent on them, especially if you're doing integrations with different services. Because I have just learned about the concept of finalizers, which define if what to do when a service needs to be deleted. And what happens if your controller can't talk, your service is stuck in a terminating state, and nothing works because now there's a deadlock scenario and it happens a lot more often if you have AWS uh, resources integrated. So I was trying to integrate uh, ALB into our EKS cluster and we were switching it off from classic load balancer. But to install ALB you need a AWS load balancer controller and as I was struggling to install that Anytime I would make a configuration error, I'm like, all right, it's just Kubernetes, delete, reapply. I would like, well, reapply doesn't work. Let's go to delete. Terminating for the last 28 minutes, that can't be right. I would go into AWS and look at and be like, oh, they cleaned up the load balancer. Let's go back to the Kubernetes. Oh, no. Not the, it says it's not cleaned up and the resource is stuck. Or if it misses a permission or something between the controller and the resource, it'll get stuck. And really hate that. My product shouldn't be stuck on stupid things like this. Like if I'm in AWS, imagine I go to the AWS dashboard, I create an ALB and now I'm trying to delete it and it's just like, whoopsie, sorry, we made some internal issue. Um, you know, go, go screw yourself. Uh, that is not something acceptable. If, if I have to look at Kubernetes as its own mini cloud that I'm just hosting on bare metal things everywhere, it should give me that flexibility of ingresses, egresses, things being deleted and recreated, regardless of the cloud provider. But that's a dream, 
you know, some dreams are just never, never come true. So that's been making me real sad lately. Um, to which I learned that you just go to Kubernetes and say, forget about the finalizer. Don't, don't look at it. You can just patch that uh, setting out. And then Kubernetes is like, oh, I don't need to finalize anything. Namespace is gone. Fine, you're good. You're no longer, you're terminated. Bye-bye. Which scares me a little bit because I don't know what's behind, left behind, if there's anything. Um, because I don't have clarity. There is no EC2 instance that I can just SSH into or no machine given to me. It's just a bunch of Golang code running in some containers, doing its magic thing. And I'm <sighs> not happy about that uh, <laughs> so far. <laughs> oh, I couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then my final mention of things that I'm not happy about. Okay. Um, there's this company. Or, okay. To establish this company, they are they're doing a good thing. They're they're good people. All right. They are they're trying to make AI and machine learning more open source. They're trying to put all the resources in one place, including training data sets, models that you can use, technologies, companies, and such. The problem I have with them is they're called Hugging Face. Oh. And their logo is the Hugging Face emoji. So it's deeply uncomfortable to look at it every time you do. And it's hard to like take an article seriously when it's like, Hugging Face has this new thing or like is introducing this new blog post on how to make your models better. I'm like, you lost me at Hugging Face. I did not even read further. Screw this place. Um, so yeah, I'm quite, quite unhappy about it. Uh, like you can't see it on the podcast, but it's just, it's just something about it. I'm just not happy. Maybe you should make a Chrome extension that just replaces that with something else that you think is a more appropriate name. I could, I could, but yeah, they have like all these like tabs and blogs and sciences and like all sorts of API specifications. Everything looks good, and you're like, oh, they're doing different problem solving and such. And then you. So, yeah, they recently integrated with AWS to make AI more reachable, whatever that means. Because I stopped reading the blog post because I saw their logo. Uh, so, it's a personal thing I need to get over, but <laughs> I just don't understand how someone like started something and it's like, we should, what we should name it? We should name it something no one will have any clue what this product or this service or this organization does. And they're just like, someone just grabbed the other guy's face and be like, hmm, <laughs> damn, damn it, Jenkins, that's a genius idea. <laughs> yes, so that is the end of my 5,000 minutes rant. I see. I think it's got to be tough kind of like searching for those things too, no? SEO must be weird Yeah. for that. Imagine the keywords are like hugging and face. Yeah. And so yeah. people are just like, maybe Attaching. someone just wants a hug. Yeah. Trying to attach like stack traces, stack trace errors as you're debugging to just like hugging face emojis, and you're like, please come up <laughs> with something. Like, oh no! It's the first step to machines taking over. They're they've maybe it's like a millennial thing. I don't know. It's just they're just like how how do we appeal to kids? They love emojis, sir. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. As as. Uh, I got the tail end of the millennials, <laughs> straggling that line between the, the millennials and the Gen Z, as they say. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no comment. Right. Yes, because I don't understand the internet. You send me things, I don't get it. That's My true. girlfriend sends me things. We're the same age, I don't get it. Eh, 
The internet's a weird place. It is. Yeah. But, you know, as a very genius author said, you know, everything, it's got something for everyone. If none of it is of interest to you, you'd be the first. Right. True. Yes. Fair enough. Yeah, he is a philosopher of our times. Uh, so, what was of interest to you, Nathan? So, I have some things that are interesting. I'm going to start with the two interesting things because they're non-tech related. Okay. Well, I think tech people might find the second one interesting. The first one, I'm only mentioning it because you've justified this to me before with the whole, there's a whole thing called being a tech bro. So this right. is just a bro thing. This is interesting. We've already discussed this, so I'll keep it quick. But I started using creatine again for the first time nice. in like a year and a half two, or, or so, a year, somewhere between one and two years. And yeah, in like four days, I gained over two kilos. It's like, okay, so that's a thing. But... I was also thinking back on like, well, it didn't have that big of an effect before, I don't I don't think. But I was eating a lot of ground beef at that time, and beef has a lot more creatine in it. Right now, I'm just eating a lot of chicken. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, maybe that's the thing. Uh, but then my girlfriend even commented like, what have you done differently at the gym? I'm like, well, I've gone less. Uh, <laughs> she's like, you look different. I'm like, well, it's probably like the two to three kilos of body weight I've gained. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... If, uh, if you're wondering, does creatine have an effect? It, unless you're a non-responder, then uh, I'm pretty sure it does. Wow. It was a very short window of like, started taking creatine, gained a bunch of weight, and didn't change anything really about my diet. So there you go. Uh, nutritional supplements, information that you didn't come to the show for. Yeah, go to creatine.com slash do better death show. Sure, yeah, you can give it a shot. I don't know what it'll be there. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the website should exist, but... Yeah, yeah you don't know. <laughs> so interesting, that's tech-adjacent, sort of. There's a YouTube channel called Cool Worlds, and this guy was actually recently on the Lex Friedman podcast. Not the reason I even found this on YouTube. I didn't go searching for it. It was just recommended to me. So it must have been enough people listened to Lex Friedman and then went to it that the algorithm picked up, like, listeners of this channel also like this thing. So anyway, I started getting recommendations. And there was one for, uh, called something like, why faster than light travel always results in time paradoxes or causality paradoxes, something like that. And it's a half-hour video. But it's really good. Uh, His presentation, the way he speaks, uh, he has nice visuals that go with it as far as uh, a nice like time graph and everything and explains how time paradoxes uh, would result from faster than light travel. So I'm sure he has a bunch of other stuff. I've got a a tab open, of course, uh, course. for something about the size of the universe. I'm excited to watch it. But yeah, the channel is called Cool Worlds and the presenter is really good. I like his... uh, his style. It's easy to listen to. Wow. And engaging. Like there's a Yo Mama joke in there somewhere. But... Maybe, but instead, just accept the inf- interesting information. <laughs> right. Uh, like an adult. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, so I've got now a few tech things. Um, a cool thing I found. Uh, I originally, again, as you might expect, found this through YouTube, but it's a separate uh, website as well that I'll link to. But this guy built in Unity a digital logic simulator and it allows you to build um essentially like logic like chips and then save them as these little abstractions and so he essentially took like i didn't watch the very first video i jumped into his second one because it was the one that was recommended so i already had it put together but i think he 
has things all the way down to like the transistors and you wire it up and then you save it and then you can create like logic gates and put those together and save those. Anyway, he just has a series about uh, how computers work and he's showing it with his simulator that he built and he's got this little page where you can like send donations or whatever, fork the, um, the GitHub or the GitHub repo and see the source code. It's pretty cool. So uh, I thought it was interesting. Um, and I don't know, I don't think there was necessarily anything I learned from the video itself, but the fact that somebody thought, went about the steps of not only I'm going to make videos about how computers work, but I'm going to build a simulation that shows how computers work. And then also he mixes in like hardware, those little boards that you like stick oh, things wow. into. Yeah. And boards? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he has one of those and he's like, yeah, here's a thing. This is basically how it works. All right, let's hop into the... Um, application, and then I can build a bunch of abstractions on top of it. Because you don't need a giant board at that point. You can just save things, name them whatever. He's like, this is a multiplexer. This is how you build it. Save. All right, cool. Now it's just a multiplexer, and I can use this to make more complex things. Pretty cool. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. This other thing that I have is cool is called Script Kit. I haven't looked into it too much, uh, but because I've been trying to get up to date on like modern TypeScript, stuff. I keep getting recommended these more TypeScript related tools. Uh, and so I came across a video about ScriptKit. It's basically just an automation thing that you write in TypeScript, but you can use it for Mac. And you kind of run it like Alfred, where you're just like, hey, here's a thing I want to do. And for example, the one of the examples that the guy who made the video um, used as an example was to say, like, run this command, turn off lights. And then he has a video of himself and then his lights turn off. He's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, you can automate a bunch of things. And I haven't looked into it enough to give a real opinion, but initial impression was, seems cool. If you wanted to use TypeScript to automate things, you can check it out, scriptkit.com. But does it like, does he have it like integrated, I guess, with the whatever HomeKit? Google Home or whatever, or uh, whatever smart devices are just working? Whatever, no, whatever smart uh, bulbs he was using, he just have a REST API. Oh, okay. And so he just hit that with his TypeScript script. Nice. And then, yeah, you can just, you, you basically just invoke it easily. Um, but he had some stuff for changing uh, a bunch of settings on OBS. He had one for recordings. He's recording a, um, a course. And so he has a script that automatically cuts off the first... Um, first and last bit of the video that is silent. And that way it just simplifies his editing a bit. So whenever he finishes, he can just eh, fix this and then it trims it. Scripts for switching between presentation mode and work mode so that it automatically increases all his font size and things in VS Code. Uh, but if you don't want to use VS Code, my fun recommendation <laughs> is I've been, use, I've been messing again with NeoVim because uh, it's the only editor I've been using now for a few months. And what I've liked about this usage of NeoVim is I'm taking a different approach to what I did before. What I was doing before was I tried to do kind of like a big lift where I would either read an article or watch some videos or whatever about here's how you can figure NeoVim to make it perfect. And then I would just be so confused about everyone's like preferences on their shortcuts and I would have all these shortcuts and remaps. And I'm like, I don't know what any of these do or what they mean. And so instead it was just kind of like, Minimal setup with LSP and uh, all the plugins that you basically need to make it feel like a proper environment. That's really easy, really quick. 
And then it's just a matter of, okay, let's browse NeoVim color themes and find some things there, find some things I like, uh, update the light bar to look and feel the way I want it to. And now it's a bit of remaps. Like I, uh, yesterday, spent a bit of time uh, updating or adding remaps to work with the built-in terminal because getting out of terminal mode, you have to do uh, control backslash control N, which is super awkward and nobody wants to do that. No. So I set up some remaps that just allow me to hit like, uh, you know, shift, um, yeah, shift capital, I guess just capital T, lowercase t. If I want to split the pane vertically or horizontally into terminal mode and then automatically open it into insert mode, it's like I'm in terminal mode. And if I want to leave it, single escape. If I want to leave it and close the terminal, double escape. And doing these small incremental changes every week or two has been really nice because I get the chance to actually develop some sort of pain point and then go, how would I like to fix this? As opposed to just adopting someone else's uh, solutions to their pain points that I don't know about. And you just end up with a bunch of like Chesterton's remaps where you're like, I don't want to remove this because I don't know what it does. Uh, but also I don't think I need this. So doing that has been fun and again, as I mentioned before, keeping it in some sort of version version control or source control is really good because if you break stuff, you can just revert, yes. uh, which is quite satisfying. So yeah, recommend that. Yes. Uh, and last thing, my wholesome recommendation. I couldn't think of one, and then you gave me wow. an idea because uh, I finally did go to the island, visit my nice. friends, uh, had a nice little very extended long weekend trip. I was there for like five days. And I just wanted to shout out small town vibes. They're very wholesome. Uh, I went out to Souk, which is smaller than Victoria. It's like 13,000 people or something. And yeah, just going to the grocery store and the guy's like saying, oh, this toothpaste, like scientists are saying it's the best toothpaste. I'm like, oh, great. We made the great choice. Excellent. Thank you. And then <laughs> checking out the liquor store, the guy's like, oh, I haven't tried this yet. Like uh, we're chatting. He's asking me questions about like what kind of uh, whiskey I like to drink or I guess scotch. And then I give him feedback. And he goes, all right, well, let me know how it is. Just like assuming I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I miss, because I grew up in a small town. And uh, yeah, I felt very familiar, very nice. So you don't get that in uh, in Vancouver. No, they'll be like, take your risk and get out. Yeah, also ID. And if you don't have ID, get out of the store. And also anybody you came in with can't get- Get out of the store. Yeah, can't, can't buy their alcohol. Yeah, so, that happened to me in Victoria too, so. Sure, sure. It, hap it happened to someone I know. Uh, and her friend, so oh. in Burnaby. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no names will be mentioned. No. But uh, yeah, that does happen, but not in this town. Uh, yeah. Neither myself nor my girlfriend got uh, asked for ID. They just chatted with us, and then we left. Wow. They're like, they're surely above eighteen years old with their IQ of chatting. Right. ID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that's that. I, I wasn't too long. Wow. So that's good. Yeah. We can now talk about Kubernetes. Good job, Nathaniel. Uh, thank. Oh, uh, <laughs> thank you. So, in the previous episode, yes. Uh, two, season two, episode eight, appropriate for K8's episode. Yes. You've already mentioned K9s. Uh, that was probably going to be in like the one of the wrap up things of like tools if we didn't mention it in the last episode. Right. Season two, episode nine. So this is all fitting together. Yeah. Uh, perfectly planned. As all things should be. Yeah, but the reason I mention this at all is if you don't have any idea what Kubernetes is, 
uh, go to the previous episode. If you don't know what virtualization is, go to the virtualization episode first. Otherwise, you're not going to have a clue what's going on in Kubernetes. No. Uh, so, yeah. Now that you're up to speed, welcome back. Uh, if you left, if not, uh, thanks for sticking around. So we're just going to dive into some of the parts of Kubernetes. You've had some more time now, so I can expose my ignorance, uh, as opposed to if we recorded last time, I would have just been able to talk, and you would have been like, mm, okay, sounds right. It's true. But now you know what's going on. A uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. It's a little bit intimidating. <laughs> so uh, as I mentioned before, my experience is with EKS primarily. So I'm just going to use EKS terminology if I'm talking about the cloud provider because I don't know what's going on on GCP or Azure. It's true. Azure uh, apparently calls their EKS. I don't know if G Google calls it GKS, but... Maybe. Yeah, but it's so funny because maybe wonder if like Azure got in first and AWS was like, oh, oh, no, oh. Shucks. <laughs> you can't call it AKS. No, no, they freaking love calling everything elastic. That's also true. Yeah. It's forever stretching. Never. One day it'll all snap. What is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, foreshadowing dystopia right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, what is serverless? It's just a big elastic band. It is. Just stretching forever. Uh, all right, so basically we're just going to start running through the parts of Kubernetes, I guess. Heck yeah. Let's so if you're going to run something in Kubernetes, it needs to run somewhere. So. That is correct. Yes, sir. But where is it going to run? So you've got these dockerized uh, applications. They need to run on something. Those, that something is essentially going to be a container initially. So you've got your image. When you build that image and run it, it becomes a container. Yes. That container in Kubernetes is grouped into pods. Yes. And so those pods are considered in Kubernetes the smallest unit, uh, which gets confusing at first because you're like, are these containers? Are these? But, but if you're using K9s, then it becomes more intuitive because you can click into a pod and then you see the containers. And you're like, ah, right. it all makes sense now. Yeah. visually um, and I never understood why Kubernetes allows you to run multiple containers in a pod but overall it made sense it just because they've slapped so many things onto a pod it would be more confusing to just have a singular pod for each container you run and communication between them where they just sort of like hey you have a bunch of things that you want to group together um, yeah go ahead you can just create a bunch of containers in the same pod yeah, Frank. This is your compute. This is your basically whatever. From your application's perspective, this is your hardware you're running everything on. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, I don't even know what the whole deal is exactly with init and wait containers. Like, I couldn't explain them because I've never bothered to read about it. Right. I only really care about the main container for the most part, which is the stuff I wrote. Uh, occasionally, I've needed to go in and say, like, my init container keeps crashing. Uh, oh, it needs, like, some an EBS volume where it needs like some RAM that it doesn't have or it's requesting something uh, and then just try to give it stuff that it seems to be complaining about without really knowing what's going on. Uh, that's the extent of the, the, the amount that I've actually interacted with them. But those do also exist. If I click into a pod, I end up seeing, all right, wait container that's completed and sometimes an init container and then my actual container that I care about, which is usually called main and that's executing my application. Because uh, pod has life cycle. So, yes. Yeah, for a pod to run, it has a whole bunch of hooks in it that you can run because 
Sometimes you want your container to run after a bunch of things have run, and you may want to group all those actions together. And each thing might have a different image because this is a big wide world of microservices. Uh, so yeah, it's very helpful for that. So one of the things I find funny, this is actually a real life example I noticed. Um, one of the things our team does is they have these init containers to ensure there's database A exists and there's connectivity established before they start up the application spot. Cool. The problem is uh, there is no liveness or readiness probes. So they'll just be like, <laughs> all right, the database exists and we can connect to it. Let's start up the application. And these are beefy applications. So some of them might take like 15, 10 seconds to boot up. And for that, we hit 500s and everyone's like, why is our application down? I'm like, it's not technically down, it's just not up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shrugginger's application. Yeah, exactly. So they're just like, but we checked, the database exists. I'm like, yes, but the instance needs time. Um, and yeah, that's so I like pointed that, that out to them yesterday. And now today I was like, okay, I would like to add a bunch of health checks to make sure these life cycles work. What ports and which endpoints can I hit? And I've had crickets since I posted that doc, so I'll follow up on it tomorrow morning with my team. Uh, but just start yeah. hitting slash healths with a Z. That seems to be the one everybody uses. That's true in most Kubernetes world. Yeah. But these people wrote these applications, so right. I have less faith. Right. I'll just start hitting slash as a TCP. And so long something's talking there, it right. should be fine, right? So. Yeah. Liveness, sure. Does it need to work? now? that's what health is for. Yeah. We just get rid is it, is it up. Uh, all right, so you've got your pods. Your pods need, so, well, first of all, that's your abstraction. So going forward is kind of like smallest atomic unit that we care about, pod. Containers, that's just for Docker people. Okay? Yeah. Kubernetes people are above that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got nodes. That's where our pods will be running. So you can group together your pods in all sorts of ways, but at least in... Uh, the way that I would think about it is you've got a bunch of nodes making up your cluster and you can assign your pods through all sorts of different ways to different nodes. Your nodes can be virtual, they can be physical. In the case of EKS, those will be EC2 instances. So you can say I've got like this node group, it's going to have three nodes in it and they're going to be of this size and they're going to be Linux and they're going to be uh, in this region, and uh, or I guess this availability zone, if you want to be that specific, a single single availability zone, multi availability zone, so many options. Um, but the pods just need somewhere that they can run based on their selectors and uh, their tolerances and all the taints and everything that's there. And it says like, can I be can I be ex can I be scheduled somewhere? That place that gets scheduled is a node, and that's compute of some kind. Yeah, and those make together make up a cluster. And your cluster is just a pool of compute, and that's where your applications can then interact through this internal network from different pods. Yeah, yeah. The way I like to think of it is like the cluster and nodes are like infrastructure details, and then pods and anything running is the application detail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So let me see. I should have reviewed my notes before this. I just took, made these notes like a month ago now because uh, it's been so long. Um, yeah, pods. So I have some notes here just because I ran through the documentation to be like, do I actually understand what these do? Because I have like a very practical understanding of how Kubernetes works where it's like 
these are things I've needed to learn, not necessarily these are correct. So I skimmed some of it, but some notes about pods. Pods get cluster-wide unique IPs, so port mapping shouldn't be needed, according to the docs. Wow. So in other words, yeah, you don't need to uh, worry about exposing ports and everything and mapping them from one to the other with the host to the uh, container or the pod in this case, because um, they're all unique. Huh. Yeah, apparently. Uh, pods can communicate across nodes, and node agents like daemons or kubelet, which when I started, kept crashing all the time, starting at, <laughs> at uh, Archera. That was our big problem with um, Carpenter, for example, was that, uh, yeah, kubelet would just get squeezed out because of all these other things trying to run on the cluster, and then it would crash, and then the nodes didn't know what state they were in, and it got detached from the control plane, and nothing knew what was going on. Uh, and so yeah, node agents like daemons and kubelet can communicate with all pods in the node. So again, to repeat, pods can communicate across nodes, and then node agents, daemons, and kubelet are within the node. Mental model going forward. Uh, and the kubelet registers nodes to the cluster. So yeah. you've got a new node, and the kubelet says, like, yo, this is the cluster you're on. And it goes, ah, oh, cool, I'm so happy to be here. And everyone else says, right on, come on, until it's m brutally murdered. Yeah. Uh, because they are. all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Everyone, they're just like me. Uh, ephemeral. Uh, a control plane manages nodes and container life cycles, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, and services. You were talking about services a little bit with uh, the controllers. Um, so we've got, at least the way that I have this uh, understood, is we've got services, which manage deployments, which manage replica sets, which manage replicas, which manage pods, which manage containers. Right. So a service exposes generally one um, entry points to an application. So it's like, this is my service, it's called Hello World. And that might have a bunch of underlying deployments. You might have multiple like microservices underneath of this one service, and those microservices could be defined in deployments. Now those deployments could have a bunch of replica sets, which are an abstraction over replicas. So you say like, I wanna have five replicas in this replica set, and they are going to use this image and they're going to have this many resources, and they will run in this place, and then you end up with replicas. So in other words, this is like the declarative level mm -hmm. for the um, desired state of your system. And so that's where you'll end up with having things to deal with like um, horizontal and vertical pod auto-scaling, things like that. But the replica set, yeah, you, you say, like, I want three replicas. If you go in and then delete one of your three replicas, Kubernetes checks and says, like, oh, state's wrong. Okay. Spin up another replica. And if you're a noob, you're like, why does this keep coming back? I just I told it to die. Uh, but that's how these things work. They're all that's ephemeral. Why. Yeah, that's why. That's life. Uh, I'm trying to think if I really have a good handle on deployments. I, I guess deployments... They provide like the the config maps. At what yeah, level do so, the config maps come in? Well, config maps are not. They're like their own identity. So config maps and secrets exist in their own beautifulness. Yes. Um, and deployments, I think of them as the environment that your application is now run, running in. Mm -hmm. So the that the environment could be. What environment variables do you have? What files you may want to mount? 
um, what secrets you may want to inject. And so the deployment part sets up the room or the context for a replica set. Because the replica set, all it cares about is, do I have the amount of numbers I yes. have to set up? And then it says, all right, for each one of those numbers, go run this deployment set. And then the deployment, not deployment set, run this deployment config. And that deployment will have every information it needs for um, even such thing as exposing the ports. Because a service might be listening on some certain port and targeting a deployment. But if that deployment container doesn't actually expose the port, nothing's going to go in there mm -hmm. and it'll make everything really sad. So they're like, I guess they're, they're Docker Compose, sort of. A way of grouping and configuring replica sets, really. Yeah. Yeah, and then the replica sets are just the layer that says, like, this is how many I want, and this is what I want it to look like. Yeah. Yeah. I could, like, handle some sort of downtime. I could handle, like, whatever. Like, it has the the replica sets can have, uh, I learned about some parameters you can pass off saying, all right, you can spin up up to, like, two more instances, and I can tolerate up to one instance going down. Yeah. But any given stage, you need at least one or two whatever sets running. Yeah, yeah, your pod disruption budget and, yeah. and all that. Uh, yeah, service already mentioned that. Deployment, declarative desired state of replica set. Uh, right, so stateful sets. They are sets that have some state. They'll have something attached to it, like a persistent volume claim. And so that allows you to mount storage. So you've got all these ephemeral uh, pods, ephemeral resources running. And the thing about something being ephemeral is that if you throw a bunch of... Uh, stuff onto disk and then it gets destroyed, then you lose all that stuff. So for example, I have, this is the only thing I have set up that's um, really stateful in any way inside of the clusters uh, at my current job, which is uh, Redis Insights. Uh, and so it gets annoying. You can do it without having a persistent volume claim, but then you have to set up your connection to Regis every time, uh, which is fine, but it's not fine for the other people on my team. Uh, so okay. yeah, they, they thought it was annoying and I'm like, that's fair. But basically with Regis Insights, you're, you're just saying it produce, uh, creates this dashboard for accessing your um, Regis. And that's very useful in our case because nobody can connect directly from their local machine to the Elastic Cache, which is running Redis um, for security reasons. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but if they want to connect, then they can shell into the uh, running cluster, forward, port forward to their local machine, and then pull up localhost 8000 or whatever it is. And then they can look at this nice dashboard. But if you don't have any persistent storage, then every time your um, Redis uh, pod gets killed, then it loses the memory of how it connected before, so, or the Redis Insights pod. So it forgets how it connected, doesn't have the connection details anymore, and you have to re-enter them. But if you have persistent, uh, persistent volume connected, then you're able to say, even when that dies, it's associated with this persistent volume claim. The persistent volume claim is associated with a persistent volume, which is just some storage, think EBS or whatever. And then when the new pod spins up, it goes, oh, there, cool, there's this claim all attached to that, and then it automatically remembers everything that the previous pod knew. So that's a way of getting around the complete ephemeral nature of Kubernetes by default uh, by having this separate persistent layer that you can then 
connect to. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes sometimes a man's got to remember things. Yeah, sometimes. And it's not always a database. It's not always a database. Uh, log files could be important if you have a log scraper running in a separate container and your application container just use logs somewhere. It's useful. Just leave it on a disk. Let someone else clean it up. Yeah. S3? Always. <laughs> you just pipe everything to S3. S3. Yeah. <laughs> and then put it into Glacier because nobody's going to read it. No. No. Pro tip. Pro tip. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what else do we have? Volumes. I guess volumes are just, I should have mentioned volumes first. Poor note organization oh. on my part. Uh, so I just talked about persistent volume claims, assuming that people would already know what volumes are. They probably do, but in case they don't, volumes are a way of taking something outside of a container. I do mean container in this case, because I'm thinking of Docker. Uh, barely, barely know her, and, so <laughs> and connecting it to your container. And so in the case of, for example, Docker Compose, uh, if you're running a uh, database on your host machine, you can then mount that database onto your uh, application pod, and then it'll say, oh, I have a connection to this database. The, even when the pod gets torn down, and your application is no longer running, you still have the database. And when you spin it back up, the volume gets mounted again, and then everything from that database is essentially accessible. It seems like the pod still remembers everything, but it's just because it was through this volume that was mounted. A separate piece of storage or whatever you want to think of it as that gets associated with the pod when the pod is ready. So what's the difference between a volume and a volume claim? Um, I don't know for sure. My understanding is that the volume claim is kind of like the way of associating a pod with a volume. Yeah, that's how I understand it to be as well. Just okay. Volumes could be anything. It could be depending on the controller and the plugins you have. Volumes could be EBS drive. It could be raw instant storage. It could be, I'm, I'm betting at this point, there's a S3 volume controller somewhere where you can just mount a bucket and just store data on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, any file system, uh, maybe you don't even need a full hard drive. Maybe on your actual instance on EC2, you have some secret, I don't know, SSL certificates or something that you want, don't necessarily put in a config map for some stupid deployment reason. Um, yeah, you just leave it in a volume and then anything that needs access to it can do a little claim on it. And claim allows you to sort of limit the interaction with the volume as well because you can say all right for this volume all of these application containers are only allowed to read but only the database container is allowed to write so based on how you set up that claim things can actually just have access to the drive but not actually modify any data on it right you could you could mount like a directory right like your yep. node modules yes because i was thinking that i was like that must be a thing that i've done before uh, it seems familiar enough uh, where, yeah, you don't want to reinstall node modules every time you spin up your uh, Docker Compose application. So you're just like, yeah, yeah just run it and then mount yeah. <laughs> mount this existing uh, hefty node modules so I don't have to reinstall every time because um, some of them get pretty beefy. They do, big boys. <laughs> <laughs> thick. Some thick node modules. Uh, all right, so basics of pod scheduling. 
I think that's something that's worth covering. Okay. By default, my understanding is that <laughs> uh, my understanding is that it's essentially random. It's just like here's a pod that's pending. I'm going to schedule it whenever I get to it. And so if you have 40 pods that get put into pending at the same time waiting to be scheduled, Kubernetes essentially just grabs them at random. But you can add these things called priorities, and those are a separate, um, what are they called, resource type, I guess. And, it's, and then you associate those resource types with different types of pods, and then that essentially gives you a wait for how soon they should be scheduled. Um, that part I haven't had to do, fortunately, because we talked about it, and I just said, no, guys, I don't think that's necessary. Let's just stop putting so many pods in at the same time. Uh, and that's mostly worked out so far, so I'm happy about that. But more importantly, there are things that I mentioned earlier, like the node selectors, pod affinity, pod affinity and anti-affinity, uh, topology, and taints and tolerations. So with something like a node selector, that one's pretty simple. You've got, say you've got a tag on a node and you've got a node selector on your pod that says like, okay, we've got these nodes that are node type worker. And then you've got pods that say, I want to be assigned to any node that has node type worker. And then you can assign different things. You could say like, okay, I want like worker small. And then this job only needs to be scheduled on small nodes, but this other job needs to be scheduled on big nodes. And it allows you to sort your pods appropriately. Uh, and then something like pod affinity says, I would prefer to be scheduled with pods that are in this same topology group. So you could say like, uh, we have all these pods, we would prefer that they get scheduled on the same uh, node. So then the first one gets scheduled, it'll just be scheduled however it is with respect to its node selector. If it doesn't have one, it'll just be randomly scheduled. And then Kubernetes will say, okay, any other pods in this affinity group or topology group, they prefer to be scheduled together. So I'm gonna to try to do that. And then you can say whether you allow that or you require it. So in other words, you prefer that they be scheduled together or you require that they be scheduled together. And then you can do the opposite. You can say anti-affinity. So if you had a cluster that spans multiple availability zones, and you're like, I would like my topology to be spread. I would like these pods to not be scheduled together if possible. Then you end up with some more um, resilience in your application because if one of your availability zones goes down in that case, then they will be uh, the other pods will still be scheduled, still be running already in those other um, availability zones. And yeah, topology, same sort of idea. I think it's basically just a different abstraction for the same sort of thing. Uh, there's a couple things in Kubernetes that are like that, where they, if you go to the docs, they just say, this is essentially the same as this, just with a different syntax. And I think topology is more or less the same. Um, you can group together like node and pod selectors and affinities under one um, configuration uh, dictionary, basically. Uh, but it's just different ways of telling Kubernetes how to organize the pods in your cluster. Wow. Yes. And if you find a pod that's never out of pending, then you've probably told Kubernetes to look for a situation that doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> Which has happened to me a lot, um, where it's like somebody updates the demands that the pod has for, like, I need 
32 gigabytes of RAM. And then it gets to the cluster and someone says, hey, why hasn't my pod been waiting to be scheduled for three hours? I'm like, well, because there's no nodes that have 32 gigabytes of free RAM. It's like, well, but these instances you told me, they I looked them up on uh, Vantage or whatever, and uh, they have 32. I'm like, yeah, but there's things running there that are not your pod, so there's not 32 free. And then, yeah, your pod will just be stuck in pending. It can't be scheduled. Same thing if you have non-existent node selectors. You're like, ah, you misspell your tag that you're selecting on, and suddenly your pod's never going to be scheduled. It'll just be impending forever, which will be very confusing for your autoscaler if you have one. Yes. It will never scale down. It will just try and try and try. Until you run out of budget? Sure. Yeah, maybe, if you have budget limits or, uh, or you just keep spending. Just like old times. Yeah. <laughs> Move fast and break things and spend other people's money. Thank you. All right. Uh, have you worked at jobs at all? Very briefly. I mean, I've created some, and I did those for us on Mines. I see. We had jobs. Jobs. My, my job. <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty simple. You can basically just think like cron jobs or whatever. Uh, they can be cron jobs. They can be normal jobs. Normal jobs just, to quote the docs, run tasks on one or more pods until successful. Yes. That is exactly what they do. That's the correct way yep. to put them. Yep. So that's what it does. You can think of it, yeah, as just like one-off uh, tasks that get scheduled or cron jobs that will be run on whatever cadence you have you have set up with your cron. Yeah, fun fact. I don't know about normal EKS clusters, um, how that works, but on OpenShift, you get uh, different, you can allocate different CPU and memory limits for long running versus short running nodes. So if you want it, your deployments can have nice, big, beefy servers and still have space left over for jobs. So you can just say, all right, if these jobs require, I don't know, X amount of gigs, they'll just be scheduled one after the other and run in the jobs, whatever quota, and then you can have the quota for your deployments that are just never, like, are left alone so that if you have one big job taking up all your space, you don't have the noisy neighbor problem with your containers serving web traffic. Nice. Cool. Interesting. Yeah, yeah we just have one cluster that's exclusively jobs so it's not relevant nice. yeah just a bunch of workflows uh, and some other things we've touched on these already uh, secrets it's for secrets it's a key value store it lives in kubernetes it is what it is it is yeah. uh, config maps it's like secrets but they're not secret yeah it's cool yeah and it's yeah settings. yeah and you can basically just say get you know get the environment from this config map or like uh, using this key path and this value path, get the secret from this secret. Pretty easy. Uh, service accounts, uh, my note. <clears throat> They're essentially like users that can be given permission to do things on the cluster. That is correct. Yes. They're just not users. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, like a machine bot account. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. So I have a bunch of uh, Helm charts that define uh, service accounts for the various applications that we run on the cluster. And yeah, you essentially just in the case of uh, EKS and the Helm charts I've used, 
you basically are just like defining a IM role and then telling it this is how you access it and assume it and whatever. And then uh, the service account exists in Kubernetes, says, cool, here's my permissions to do things. I'm going to go do those things. Yeah. And yeah, it's how you automate stuff. Liveness and health checks, which you mentioned. Uh, requests and limits. I'll touch on this briefly. Pods. You need to tell Kubernetes how much how much resources it needs. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't know where to put the pod. So when I first put all of them. Yeah. So when I first started, this was another issue we were having. There were really low requests and no limits. So things were asking for like, um, I don't know. 200 and then using like eight gigs of like memory and I'm like this is not good because then they would just constantly be crashing so the way that this works is you get a request the request is the amount that is guaranteed so if you request one gigabyte of ram or mem in this case memory uh kubernetes will say where is a where is where is a node that has at least one gig of space. And then you have a limit. And the limit is not guaranteed. It's the amount that Kubernetes will say, this is how much you get. If other pods need that space, I will terminate you if you've gone over your limit. So there's like a bit of flexibility. If it gets slightly above one gig and there's no other um, limits on the amount of CPU available on that uh, node, Kubernetes kind of for the most part ignores it, uh, at least from what I've seen. But if there's a bunch of pods all competing uh, for memory, then it's kind of just going to be like, "Hey, you're you're using two gigs. You only were given. You only were requesting one. Get out of here." And so it'll kill it. And then, depending on how things are configured, it may get rescheduled elsewhere. It may not. We don't know. Uh, your mileage may vary. But on the contrary, there's something. The settings for CPU are a bit different. So with CPU, that's called a compressible resource. So you request some certain amount. Again, it will be guaranteed that amount based on where it's scheduled. Uh, but the limit is not really recommended uh, because it is so-called compressible, meaning that if there's a bunch of pods competing for CPU, assuming that you've done some sort of right sizing, Kubernetes just kind of says, I'll just let these things run slower. And if this one's asking for more CPU, I'll let it use some more and I'll squish down the other ones and then if some other one's asking for more it'll let it uh, use more. Uh, where you would want limits with CPU is if you have potentially like poorly implemented application code that is going to just run away with CPU and squeeze out all the other resources or all the other pods they were trying to run. Otherwise the general rule at least from what I've seen lately in Kubernetes conversations is to just not put a limit on there because Kubernetes will take care of it for you. Nice. Yeah. Especially like spikes and such. Every once in a while, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the flexibility is really useful. Um, and yeah, we as I've mentioned, we have a bunch of jobs that run and some organizations are large, some are small. So having a one size fits all for like CPU and stuff doesn't really make sense. It's nice to be able to grant some more CPU to something that's trying to churn through much more data than this other organization that has almost no data and it'll finish in a second or two anyway. This other one, 
if it uses more CPU, it finishes in a, a few, like tens of seconds versus tens of minutes if we just didn't give it that CPU. So a important thing to consider. In Helm, we've already talked about. So that's it. Wow. Yes. That is everything Kubernetes you needed to know. I don't think that's true. I still learn things all the time. Like we didn't, reckon, we didn't mention custom resource definitions, your favorite. Uh, we barely mentioned pod disruption budgets. I learn things about Kubernetes all the time. And look how little I knew. I barely knew what a deployment was. I know kind of that I need to write them and that they make my application go burr. But apart from that, that's all you need. Yeah, it's just abstraction over something. Yeah. Yeah. Everything I, else is nonsense. You heard it here first. Yeah. Everything <laughs> else is nonsense. Yes. It's a very inclusive statement. <laughs> that's excluding a lot of things. Sure. But yeah, next episode could have tooling. Helm, and... We talked about Helm a little bit last time. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. Do you feel a bit more sympathetic to it now, or is that for another episode? Slightly, but okay. but still not not a fan. My, my whole belief is Kubernetes should give you out of the box what Helm does. Or you should just write a little, like, environment substitution tool or something that's just, like, values.yaml, thing.yaml, merge. I see. Everything's YAML. So, <laughs> the future. The future. Yeah. Shout out to Adobe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, that is all Kubernetes we're going to cover today. Right on. Because it seems like from knowing nothing about Kubernetes, you've done so much better over the years to learn about it. Well, it does give me a little bit of imposter syndrome knowing that uh, I, with a much different background, came in and was like, okay, I've spent the last year learning a bunch about Kubernetes and things. And they are just like, yeah, so I was away for a couple of years, came back, now I know what's going on. I'm like, ah, right. Yeah, but I also spent two years exactly, on yeah. it every it, day for hours. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, different backgrounds. Yes. Probably, yeah. I remember <laughs> helping you with the TypeScript function one time. <laughs> You're like, how do you not know this? Uh, different, different experiences. Um, yeah, so... Did better. I finally visited my friends on the island, nice. as I mentioned. Uh, and this one I've not mentioned on the show at all before, but one of my uh, focuses for the quarter is to either intentionally expand my comfort zone or just if things come up that are out of my comfort zone, just making more of an effort to try to do them. And so this one sounds dumb to anyone who doesn't know me, but driving a bunch driving onto the ferry and parking in various places with a SUV was definitely out of my comfort zone. I don't love driving yeah. and uh, I've never driven onto the ferry before and it's a chunky vehicle uh, to squeeze onto the very narrow lanes of the ferry. Uh, plus, yeah, like parking garages and getting used to how everything, how this car fits into various places. It was intimidating for me, uh, especially with my girlfriend in the passenger seat the whole time. Uh, <laughs> so it's not like I can just go uh, get comfortable on my own and really take my time the whole time. I'm just like, oh, and hoping that she doesn't provide too much feedback as we're going. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think it went fine. But again, yeah, it was, it was a big deal for me. And another thing that I didn't mention as a goal, but sort of emerged through how I was feeling at the gym was just taking more rest days. I've been doing a lot better with that. 
going more like three or four times a week as opposed to like six times a week, which again, during the last couple of years where a lot of things weren't happening, that was good. I had nothing else to do. Let's go to the gym. Now, trying to avoid getting a banner on Spotify. Uh, <laughs> uh, now I am much more, um, have much more options for things to do and I would like to spend time doing those things and it makes the time I spend at the gym much more enjoyable. Like I went today, great workout, just had five, six days, whatever it was, off for my extra long, long weekend and I'm going to tr- keep trying to do that because I've been doing well <clears throat> the last two or three weeks with going less often. Uh, th- doing better is stupid. I'm not going to do it. Um, what? That's it. No, I have, like, <laughs> I didn't make any notes for doing better. I have, it's the same things. I need to... Peak. Now, no. Now with creatine in your veins. <laughs> no, I've got, I've got some things I need to do. Like, I do need to focus more on... I have a tab, a tab pinned on my uh, computer now for Duolingo because I'm not doing it on my phone. Doing it on your phone is annoying. Uh, I want to be able to type things on a keyboard, not on my phone keyboard, uh, because I have so many typos in English on my keyboard. I don't need, or on my phone, I don't need to be worrying about putting the right accent and then it autocorrects to some French word because my I've done a bunch of Duolingo in French before. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and then it just fails and it's annoying. I want to be able to type and at least then it's not as frustrating because I can spend 45 seconds trying to write this one sentence. Um, so anyway, I've got that. I need to do more Spanish and, uh, I don't know, do some more planning, I guess. I was chatting with my sister about doing some, uh, doing some hiking. So I need to book that. But generally, um, I got the same things I always have. I haven't been working on my interpreter. I need to do that. Mm-hmm. Curious about some rust. Um, I don't know, man. I, my main thing was just going to the island nice. and trying to spend some time, some quality time with uh, with my girlfriend. So I did those things. That was my main focus. Just got back yesterday, <laughs> so I haven't thought too many too uh, too many steps ahead since then. What about you? As you shouldn't. Um, all right, did betters. Last time I said I'm just gonna you know work more and look into Kubernetes things. Uh, you and clearly have, yeah. Yes. Sheesh. <laughs> So it's been, yeah, it's been good getting back into the groove of things a little bit. Uh, finally, actually, like, contributing some of the code in at work and being like, oh, yeah, land my first PR, had lots of issues with it, and my second PR, that fixed all the issues from first. Um, looked at some of our Kubernetes things, still sort of getting used to the fact that I don't necessarily know how to test out, because infrastructure things, you need your own little environment to do things in. And I'm not comfortable with how we have everything right now, just because even if I make a Kubernetes change, I don't know if it'll necessarily work with our application because I don't know how to deploy our application. Uh, so still feeling a little like down about that, but I'll talk to them. But I had the whole I had a whole like chat with myself last week because the imposter thing came in pretty strong. I'm like, am I just a fraud? They're paying me so much for like doing all of this work, and I just don't know if I'm like up to the task. They keep like asking me things. And then I like had a chat with my senior engineer being like, yes, and I'm looking at these, these, this, and I've like toned down a little bit because with each talk I have with them, I always just remind myself of like, oh, it's only been three weeks. It's impossible to learn all the work they've done over the last three years in that amount of time. And the fact that it's still constantly changing. Um, and yeah, I would talk to him and be like, yes, I'm still looking at these other things, but a lot of the things I'm doing right now won't get done at the same amount of time as someone else because I need the context to build up 
and such. So I think it's more me talking to myself than to him about these things. And he's like, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I'm like, <laughs> thanks, Travis. This feels good about it. Um, yeah, my gym routine is relatively back. I'm doing three days now instead of four. And <clears throat> enjoying that. Uh, it's nice. And it's doing, I'm sort of doing it in like the middle of the day. So it's a good break between like work and starting my day and such. But I am sleeping in too much now, I think, and need to sort of maybe go back to being slightly more morningy person or figure out how to use my evenings effectively. Because uh, with my partner, is evenings are late because of her work schedule. And I, I just have never had to deal with that because past 7 p.m., I'm like, no energy, must sleep. And now I'm like, it'll be 11 most likely before we're in bed or midnight, and I can't just wake up at 6 and do everything. So I need to figure out how to make my 5 to 9 more effective now so my 9 to 5 isn't affected as horribly. Um, yeah, doing more work, as I said, for did more things. Uh, and listening to still more some machine learning stuff but in the past week i've listened to the boys cast way too much oh no because uh, <laughs> I've, I've been playing it while working out i've been instead of like hardcore music just because i'm like sometimes going around in the middle of the day i still have thoughts and things going on in my head i'm like i don't want to just block it all out or if i go at like 6 7 p.m i don't want loud music Hmm. So just like having the boys cast running while I like do some workouts and such, it's been fine. Um, Interesting. I had to do literally the opposite. I have to force myself to not listen to podcasts <laughs> at the gym. I just put on music. Otherwise, I don't have as good of a workout. Ah, uh, no, no. I end up thinking. I am thinking too much. But I listen to a lot of Lex Friedman, so it's all very like. Uh, it's the opposite of the boys cast. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. There's no actual pod going on. Every once in a while, I'll be working on a chuckle and like, all right. Yeah. Or be like, now nah, you guys are crap, and but I like it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and then I did a thing on. I wanted to sort of relook at my finances. Uh, so this whole getting paid twice a month thing is just. <laughs> It's Three for a loop, eh, bud? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not... I, I liked my every two weeks payroll because now I'm, like, looking at, like, allocating things here and there, and I'm like, I can't have to wait, like, too, too long. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but what I did was I looked at my credit card situation on... I just have this one credit card, and it's no longer in the bonus period or whatever, and I found this subreddit where... It's called like churning Canada or something, and oh, all their no. whole thing is they just churn through different credit cards every year or two or something. Some people do it like weekly, monthly basis to get oh, those I'm, points. Oh, I'm familiar with credit card churning. I, yeah, I've never done it. Yes, so I wasn't aware of it, and because I of my account with TD, I'd never have to pay uh, like annual fees on any of the cards. I'm like, why don't I use these like welcome offers on like every couple of years? Maybe I should just like the recycle. Um, so yeah, now I've ordered their uh, travel one because I've been traveling a decent amount. I'm like, let's use the points. I use Expedia anyways. TD has a tie-up with them, and I might be able to just use points for that because my cashback card is at this point, I think, like 1%, 2% or something. And I already have another cashback card, so it makes no sense to have two of them. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'm going to get the travel one, try it out for a year, um, and like just look at slowly every couple of years running around when those things because why don't people do it it's it's there it's free money <laughs> get it um so yeah i've been thinking about that a little bit more the hustle life right this is a very 
very you sort of thing to do after this whole uh I don't think that was on the show, but the the figuring out how to get Uber things uh, and the thing that was on the show was you going hard on the tangerine um, bonuses repeatedly, and they put on good bonuses. They do. So yeah, in the last two or three, four years, I've gotten two of the really good promotions, Uh and I might do that again. I I love RBCs, but they charge money for your accounts, which is stupid. Oh, yeah, RBC, that's why I have Tangerine, is because I need to get away from RBC. Yeah. So, yeah, and yeah, Tangerine came up to me, like, sent me an email yesterday (laughs) being like, hey, uh, by the way, we'll give you up to a grand if you invest $500,000 in this. I'm like, bro, if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't be like looking at five hundred bucks, so like leave me alone. Uh, so yeah, I think they know that they're getting deleted in like two months. I got the same email. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, it's not a it's not a pledge pledge thing. No. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been doing. I'm gonna look at more different I don't know financial scams, and uh, there and my next do better is just work. I I do have a trip coming up next month, and then I have a trip coming this weekend. Uh, to celebrate my girlfriend's birthday. Great. Uh, so we'll be looking at things. So I'll just try to be a good boyfriend because I have sort of have to coordinate things that I'll be doing for her and things that her very loving family has sent and wants to do for her birthday. So I'm the coordinator a little bit. And I've taken that role very happily, but that means I do have to think, which uh, is something everyone knows I'm not very fond of. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you do? Hence the boys cast. Hence the boys cast. With Ryan <laughs> Yes, and now that I know there's a boys cast with Joe Rogan. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, most most recent guest as of the time of recording on the JRE is yeah. Ryan Long from Canada. <laughs> yeah. So. So it should be a completely unproductive conversation yeah. that I'm looking forward to. Three here. plus hours of surely complete nonsense. Yes, Sure, there'll be a lot of offending things in there, and I'm looking forward to it. Right on. Okay, that's it. Bye. Bye.